0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingbury, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We're happy you could join us. Today, we have Dr. Jaya Craddock, who's an assistant professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and a scholar of the HIV intervention science program and Society for Fla- Family Planning Changemaker. She graduated from the University of Southern California, Suzanne Dorak Peck School of Social Work with a PhD and Master of Social Work, and San Francisco State University with a Master's in Sexuality Studies. Her research centers on using computational, social science, and qualitative methods to address sexual health and HIV disparities in complex adaptive systems, which are called networks. Her scholarship utilizes innovative social work methods and artificial intelligence technologies to examine how social work dynamics and social media communication impacts decision-making around sexual health related behaviors. Welcome, Dr. Cradock.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: So we're excited to have you talk to us about social work and trying to find ways that um, social work interacts or is interrelated to public health. So to just get us started, could you Tell us a little bit about social work as a field um, and what does it entail?
1: Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, That's a great question. So um, it's a question a lot of people have um, due to sometimes the negative connotations they hear when they hear social work. Um, Oftentimes they think of someone who comes and takes someone's kid and they think that's just the profession of social work. Um, And that's not really the profession of social work. That's just one role of one job um, that many things that social workers can do Um, in general, the field of social work um, or the profession is geared around um, helping people in need um, with a client centered approach, um, meeting the client, meaning meeting the client where they are. Um, and that's kind of the fun that's the foundation of the profession and of course it can be done in many different ways um, like by providing therapy, support services, community advocacy. Um, it can take place at different levels such as the individual level, the family level, group levels, community levels and in- institutions. Um, also at governmental levels. Um, and so social work is not one type of job, but has individual specialties, kind of like a physician has, and um, it allows the profession to address different issues from different angles. So, um, you know, it's a wide field and it covers a lot, um, you know, and I guess that's why the name is social work, because in general, it's just like a society, of work. We're doing things at different levels, just like the societies at different levels. We're working with different types of people and we have different types of roles and jobs within society. And so that's just the basis of um, what social work is.
0: Awesome. So it sounds really interesting um, as a field of practice. What motivated you to pursue and also probably stay in the field of social work? Uh,
1: Yeah. So what I say, um, what motivated me, um, really social work. I kind of always say that social work chose me. Um, when I was applying to PhD programs, um, I applied to social work, I applied to community psychology, and I applied to public health programs as well because my work intersects um, with those different fields. Um, I used the same personal statement for all of the programs with some minor tweaks. You know, you just have to address the requirements for each of the programs. Um, but I really kept the essence of what I wanted to do the same um, across um, all of my applications. Um, And what ended up happening was I was accepted to all of the social work programs applied to um, and none of the other programs. So I wasn't accepted to any community psychology programs or public health programs, but all of the social work programs I applied to. Um, And so I always say social work chose me um, and I just chose what schools to attend. (laughs) I just chose which school to attend. Um, But looking back at my personal statement, which I do sometimes, um, I did notice that unknowingly I used a lot of social work concepts and um, such as like the ecological model approach and aspects of social justice in the description of my proposed work and what I was interested in doing. I'm really looking at the interactions in families and friends and just the community members impact on an individual's decision making process. So understanding how, now I know the terms back then, I didn't really know like social networks, understanding how the social networks impact how a person makes a decision and how those interactions between friends, family, neighbors, um, colleagues, roommates, whoever they are, um, shapes how a person makes a decision. And I think when the schools, the social work schools, read my personal statement. They saw those core values of social work in my writing and um, thus selected me um, to be a part of social work. And what motivated me to stay is when I was, you know, doing my MSW, you know, seeing those core values and understanding the client or patient-centered approach um, that really focused on empowering, uplifting, and supporting communities through various challenges um, that they're facing and what we're facing in society um, really motivated me to stay in social work. Um, And I'm going to be a little controversial and say that social work and social workers may have a historical weakness in that you know, what was always best for the communities, um, particularly communities of colors, has not always been done and done properly. Um, but that's true with almost every profession, including medicine, law, and hard sciences and teaching professions, um, is a society problem that, you know, some of the challenges aren't, um, addressed. I'm going to say addressed in the best way possible or, um, in the way that is needed to actually make progress and change. Um, hence, you know, society is just very far from perfect. It's not, it's not a perfect society and change is needed at every level and in every profession and in social work. Yeah. It has its some of its weaknesses, and, but it has a lot of strengths as well. Um, which is why I decided to, you know, pursue social work and stay um, in social work and continue my work through the lens of a social worker and social work um theories and methods
0: Awesome so I hear you say you know you uh, the theories of socio ecological model looking at networks it's really interesting because it's the same thing we do in public health so, What is your understanding of public health?
1: Yeah, so my understanding of public health profession is that public health aims to examine health disparities, prevent negative health outcomes, track and track disease and track disease outbreaks and promote health and well-being overall, um, like social work um public health is multifaceted and addresses health at various levels but i think one of the main differences um between social work and public health is public health is very health focused right it's and health can encompass a lot of different things but um it's really focused on like physical health and you know environmental health and some aspects of mental health um, whereas social work is focused on the person as a whole. So, not only just the health aspects, but also like needs and services um, and um, other things that may um, help improve the overall well being of a person. And um, there are some aspects where these two intersect, but there's also some places where they diverge and they're very different. Um, and so, um, I feel like my work kind of meets in a somewhat middle point of that, where it it lies in public health because I'm really focused on health and sexual health and um, you know physical health. Um, but I'm also interested in the overall person and everything else outside of just their health um, and how to how that impacts their health. And so I think it kind of works well together in that sense when it comes to my work.
0: Okay. That that sounds good. I, I'll take okay. that. <laughs> um, so I see that um, you, you're very interested in working with youth, so sexual health among youth. Um, what made you become interested in working with this population and why? Yes,
1: health? so that is a, another great question. Um, so this started for me, I think, a long time ago, before I even Uh, I'm going to say all the way back to at least I can remember is high school. Um, I was just talking with my husband, actually, the other day of how my senior high school project is almost very similar to the work I do today without me even knowing um, this. But um, I was always interested in how teens or how. Um, young adults are influenced by media back then. It was not there was no social media back when I was in high school. So social media wasn't even a thing to consider, but it was just like media. So, how does um like MTV or VH1, how do those different things they see and how do they talk to their friends about sex and relationships? And how does that impact what a person decides to do, like their decision making? And so my senior high school project was really around you know, understanding. I looked at um, media, really media, commercials, um, uh, MTV, and like the different images they show on, you know, what's cool and what's not cool and how that, that impacted what a um, a young person and then teenagers decided to do. I also worked a lot with teenagers, um, even though I was a teenager myself, but I worked a lot with um, younger teenagers, like junior school preteens and some um, um, younger high schoolers when I was in high school as a a coach, a cheer coach, and, you know, hearing them talking about their relationships and, you know, getting advice from each other, even though their friends didn't really have great advice because they were young too, um, but how that just impacted what they decided to do in regards to their sexuality, in regards to their relationships, led me to further question, you know, well, how does this really work overall? Um, And then when I was in my um, undergrad, I kind of started focusing more on child development. Um, So I have a degree in child development and then also graphic design because I was interested in how these two kind of interact, like the development of a a teenager was really interested in teens um, and young adults and how media can be shaped to Influence um, their decisions and what to purchase, what to wear, what to, you know, do. Um, And then after I graduated undergrad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I had an idea. I wanted to work with teens. I wanted to work with something around media, but I didn't really know about research. Um, And I ended up in this job uh, that allowed me to learn more about research as a coordinator for a program that helped undergraduates of underrepresented backgrounds get into um, research opportunities for graduate school. And I had never considered graduate school. I didn't really know anything about graduate school. But, in this position, I really got the chance to see it front hand of what was needed um you know the research the the experience, the, you know, well, everything that you need to get into graduate school. And uh, it had me thinking like, well, why don't I go to graduate school? And like, I have this interest, I'm really interested in understanding, you know, what influences decisions around like sex and behavior in young adults and teenagers. Um, but you know, I didn't even consider that I can go into research. So after talking to some of um, the staff members in our department it was the psychology department, um, and they were like, yeah, you know, you can do this. Um, you know, you should look into the sexuality studies program. You should apply there. And, you know, I think your interest really fits that. And I was like, okay, sure. Why not? And I applied and got in, it was like, oh, this is great. And it kind of led my research into a different area. Um, cause once I got into that program, I was still interested in sexuality and everything like that. But my mentor, her research was really on HIV in couples, which was a different thing than I ever considered. Like, focusing on HIV, looking at couples and couples dynamics with the more I did work with her and the more I read the literature and understood and looked at the dyadic connections, it really led me further into one, I learned a little bit about what networks were, but not too much. I still didn't have a full term to put on it, Um, but how the relationship dynamics influence HIV risk. And then I started asking more questions like, well, how does this impact the Black community? How does this, you know, impact, you know, women? And so I started doing research and I found that there was very little research in this area really around Black women. Um, young adults, um, all of that when it came to HIV and sexual health. So that led me to go further into that um, during my,
0: uh,
1: my master's program in sexuality studies where I end up collecting data from Black women um, who are HIV positive. Um, I interviewed them about their lives before, during, and after their diagnosis. And, you know, I started to notice some patterns around um, their sexual risk behaviors or their their perceived risks. So a lot of them felt like, oh, I was never at risk for HIV. You know, you know, I did these things, blah blah blah, but I would never, I never thought that would happen to me. So you know, I was like, I wonder how many other young black women feel this way, and that led me further to my research around young black women and understanding HIV um, prevention and risk behaviors and knowledge and education and all of the communication around sexual health and networks and understanding all of that and that's kind of led me to where i am today um in this work where now and i'm looking not only at you know communication with young black women but also including young black men and understanding how we can take what we know and turn it into interventions that would be um network-wide or community-wide interventions that can be implemented to really uh, be tailored towards this population that is often underlooked and under-researched. So,
0: yes. (laughs) Awesome. It's a really fascinating journey you've had, and it looks like it's headed in the right direction uh, with um, interesting Research ideas. So you talked about networks, um, social networks. Could you go into more detail about that and what does? Yes. That so detail? social
1: networks, not to be confused with social networking, which is often it's confused mm-hmm. with. Um, oftentimes, when I tell people I do social network research, they're like, "Oh, like Facebook or Instagram," or and I'm like, "Well, yeah, that's like social media, um, and that's social networking, but it's not really social networks." And what I mean when I say social networks and what people are talking about when they're talking about social network analysis or social network uh, research is looking at the networks of interaction. So people um, who are interacting together. So um, I'm interacting with my classmate who interacts with that classmate made. And together in this class, we are a network of students, right? And so looking at those individual dyadic relationships and how they network out, how they build out into this community of individuals who interact with each other that have some kind of relationships. Um, And networks can be, you can look at different types of networks. So it can be direct networks where you're looking at direct communication or interactions between individuals. You can look at, you know, networks of people who are you know, um, not directly speaking to one another or not communicating, but are just linked to one another through other kind of activities. Like we're both on the sports team or we're both in this class um, and we're all a part of the same network, even if we haven't interacted directly. Um, and so there's two different types of networks um, that um, are usually examined. One is egocentric networks and egocentric networks are really focused on the individual. So say um, you're looking at me and who I'm connected with. And then I'm telling you about my relationship with those individuals. And so it's really focused on the ego. It's really focused on me and my connections with the people in my network versus a social, a sociometric network, which is more like a bounded network where you're like, I'm looking at everybody in this room and their connections. So if you're talking about a classroom, you're looking at the entire classroom and who's connected with whom, who communicates with whom, who studies with whom, You know, looking at these different types of relationships that That people have within that bounded network. Um, And you're looking at everybody in that network, even if there's somebody we considered an isolate, meaning they're not connected with other people in that network. They're just in the entire network with no connections, you know. So there's different types of network analysis and, you know, you're able to look at and examine different things um, based on how you examine those networks and, you know, v- whether it's an eagle network or if it's a um, sociometric network.
0: And so for your research, which ones have you focused on, on the ego? Yes, so
1: I've done both. Um, So I like to collect data that I'm able to do kind of both with, Um, and um, I've used them in different ways. So the ego network data is really looking at the individual and how their direct networks are influencing like communication. So looking at... Who do they talk to about sex who do they talk to about condom use who do they talk to about um contraceptive use or pregnancy um and how does those interactions that communication impact their decision making on whether or not they use a condom or whether or not they get tested for hiv um, so i look at that kind of eagle that dyadic relationships um in my in my research and then i also look at the sociometric kind of networks where i'm looking at the overall networks trying to understand how is how are you able to disseminate information within these networks based on who is speaking with who and how? Um, so like, are they using, um, talking with their friends on um Tech, via text message or on Instagram or on Facebook. And if we develop an intervention to be disseminated within this network, um, what is the best platform to disseminate that information? And so I've been able to take my research and my data and use both types of social network um, methods and and come up with ways to um, further grow intervention development for young black adults, so.
0: Great. So, based on that, what are some of the sexual health and HIV disparities among the youth that you have yes, worked? Yes. So with?
1: that's a great question. So, there's a lot of different disparities. Um, I'm not going to focus on numbers because it de- very it depends on where you are um, and what those disparities look like. So, in right now, I'm in Baltimore, and that looks very different than Los Angeles, right? But there's some overall um, disparities that impact. I think majority of young black up young black adults and just high-risk um youth like youth that experience homelessness which i've worked a lot with youth who experience homelessness um that you know they face some disparities that aren't seen in some other populations and some of that is like access to medical and sexual health services and not only access to like location like getting there but also through insurance um, and also quality of care. So, you know, you might be able to access uh, a sexual health center, um, something like a Planned Parenthood um, in your community. But, you know, if you don't have insurance to cover certain costs, you may not be able to afford certain kind of services, whether that's getting an STI check um, or just getting uh, a visit with the OBGYN or something like that, just basic care, um, it's hard to access that, especially if you um, are a homeless youth or youth experiencing homelessness. You might not even have the insurance or, um, the access, the knowledge to know exactly where you should go to access those services you may need. Um, and then there's also like um, overall health disparities, so like with HIV and STI rates among youth of color and other high-risk youth, um, like I said, youth experiencing homelessness, um, and and a lot of that has to do with lack of education, lack of access, lack of knowledge. Um, You know, and and a lot of misinformation, Um, you know, some youth haven't had um, sex ed in high school or their high school didn't provide sexual health information. And the only way they're getting information, that's why I'm so interested in communication, is through their networks and their friends. And there's a lot of misinformation shared that can put them at higher risk for certain things. And when it comes to not having the right knowledge or education, or access to the right resources, Um, and so even though I focus a lot on the individual and the networks, you know, understanding how this communication is spread within networks, it does help me understand how and where people are getting access to information, how they're accessing services, which is a big part to um, why there's disparities. Um, And in that too, you know, I just wanted to mention there's also disparities in, you know, um, Family planning services, so you know access to abortion, access to condom use, um, and all of that. And so, when you're thinking about like the overall sexual health of a person, it's not just STIs and HIV. It's also family planning, whether they want to have kids or not, um, and how they're able to make those decisions based on their circumstances and their network's information, what they're the type of information they're gaining um, from the people around them.
0: So I know you're also interested again in the theoretical frameworks. Um, how does the social ecological model play in this um, in this yes. research and your focus? Yes. And, and so
1: the um, social ecological model really kind of lays the foundation for why I use social network analysis, right? So it's not just looking at the individual level. So the so- social ecological model um, has the different levels, the individual, um, the interpersonal, the, communi- uh, the community levels. And so the social networks allow me to look at across those different levels. So how does, you know, communication within a community impacts an individual person's decision-making process, right? And so understanding how, you know, decisions aren't just made by individual. It's made through the interactions and the communications and the Access to care and the policies that surround that individual. So, using that larger framework that considers different levels of what I'm going to use right now—the word uh, power or different levels of communication, just different levels uh, of decision making—really, really shapes how a person is able to navigate the world, how they're able to make decisions and decide to do something or not do something based on what is available to them across all of those different levels. And that's why I kind of use that perspective in understanding, um, one, health disparities and decision-making and HIV risk and sexual health among you know, these young adults, Um, because it's not just the individual decision, like I decided to use condoms because I decided to use condoms. And sometimes people feel that way. But there's a lot of other factors that are actually playing in their decision making. Like I decided to use condoms because I tried to go to the store to get some. And, you know, they asked me to show ID and I didn't have my ID. So I didn't use them. Or I didn't know where I can access free condoms because they only provide them in a certain community. And they don't provide that in my community. Or, you know, it can be partner related or friend related. Like, if you really trust your partner, then you shouldn't use condoms, right? You know, people get those different messages and they have different barriers to why they can and cannot or why they do or don't make a certain decision. Um, and understanding all those various levels um, and taking all of that in consideration is important to when you're talking about you know, certain outcomes, right? It's, it's important when you're talking about your outcomes because outcomes don't occur in silos. They occur because of all of these different factors that are shaping um, the decisions that people are able to
0: make. Yes, so true. Um, And I think it helps us really understand uh, behavior to a certain extent because we cannot put the burden of change on one individual. There are so many other Mm -hmm. um, factors outside of his control or or her control. And so it's critical when we look at these health issues um, from that multifaceted Mm -hmm. um, perspective. So I see you're interested in using technology in your research. Um, I also find technology another really awesome tool. Um, what are artificial intelligence technologies yes. and how do you use it? So them? AI,
1: oftentimes when people think of artificial intelligence or AI, they think of like these robots, like, oh, you know, I am your mom kind of robots um, like taking over the world. Um, but really, um, artificial intelligence is like a catch-all branch of computer science. So it's just a word or words, a phrase that people use to put everything that computer scientists are focused on um, that, you know, into one bag. Um, And it's really just focused on um, AI really just means um, um, focused on building Machine, cap- machines that are capable to perform tasks that are typically required by humans or human intelligence. So, you know, being able to calculate something real quick, you're using a calculator is actually using artificial intelligence or AI because it's it's doing a task that is typically required of a human intelligence. Right. And so there's these little things, um, across the board that AI encompasses that we often use and don't realize that we're using AI technology. Um, for my research, um, thus far I've I used one type of AI technology. Um, it's called a uh, heuristic arthur rhythms. Um, which is designed to solve problems in a faster, more efficient fashion than the traditional methods. And so uh, it's optimizing the ability to figure something out, right? And so one of the reasons why I first off collaborated with computer scientists is because I wanted to know what was the best way to spread um, sexual health information within networks of young black adults. Um, And we also did this with um, youth experiencing homelessness, like who or what is the best way to spread um, with the, youth experiencing homelessness, we looked at who is the best peer leader or per- place person to be in a network to be selected as a peer leader to disseminate information in the network. So we're looking at this like optimizing what is the most optimal method to do this. And computer scientists um, are... Game to do this. They're excited. That's what they do. They try to figure out the best methods of doing something. Um, so we use this technique, which we called maximum influence algorithms, to determine the most optimal way to spread sexual health information within social networks of young adults. Um, so we ran simulation models of the social metric networks. So these are the social social metric networks um, that I kind of spoke on earlier. And we took this data. Um, from both um, youth experiencing homelessness and also um, my data with young black women to determine who in the network is best placed to be trained as peer leaders. Um, And then my research specifically with Black women also included the component of what mode of communication would be the most optimal uh, mode of spreading that information. Um, So what we did was run a bunch of simulation models with the sociometric networks of um, youth experiencing homelessness and based on the model we selected. Peer leaders to be trained as um, sexual health educators to go out and talk with their network members about sexual health, um, which was awesome. Um, it actually worked really well, and you know further research is coming. Um, And uh, that work was done with Dr. Eric Rice at USC. And it it was amazing. And they're still doing more work there. Um, My work um, was mostly looking at the modes of communication. So what is the best mode of communication to spread information? Is it in person? Is it text message? Is it via phone call? Is it using social media? Um, And my work is still continuous. So we're still working on a lot of that. Um, But I did have some amazing findings come out of that work. um, which um, I can share with you guys a little bit later, but, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like my collaborations with computer scientists. It's just been an amazing experience to be able to harness this AI technology to help improve health outcomes and to help, better help understand health in general. Um, And I want to continue to collaborate with computer scientists over the rest of my career um, and use some of the AI technologies in my research and expand to not just using algorithms um, to figure out the most optimal way to use a network, but also expand to using like natural language processing and machine learning to develop, um, media-based intervention. So, you know, thinking about natural learning processing um, is its another piece of artificial intelligence that deals with the interaction between computers and humans um, using the language, right? And so it's like what you use when um, you call a credit card company or something, and they say press one to blah blah blah. So that's kind of like natural language learning processing, because they're it's it's interacting with you. And then the more better the better ones are kind of like Siri and. Um, Alexa, where you're able to speak with them and they respond back to you. That's another part of natural language um, processing. So I want to be able to use that type of technology um, for people to ask questions around sexual health and sexual health education or access to service. Like, hey, Siri, where's the nearest sexual health clinic? Right. Um, Now my Siri's going off. (laughs) But um, to be able to use that type of uh, technology Um, to improve health outcomes of young adults um, because a lot of them have access to smartphones and studies have shown, um, like the Pewitt reports have shown that, you know, about, I think it's about 95% of young black adults have a smartphone and to be able to use what they already have in their hands to provide more uh, accurate information about sexual health and HIV. um, It's something that I'm, you know, I really want to do I'm like striving to do Uh, and so those are kind of my next steps I'm hoping to move forward with in you know the development of interventions to include some more of this um, uh, this other branch of um, AI technologies
0: Wow that's really really fascinating I think it's very innovative and it's all about using the tools that are relatable to the population that you're working with and I can't wait to see what comes out of it. Um, I also see that you're interested in examining how social media communication impacts decision making among uh, youth uh, in the topics of sexual health. Could you talk to us a little bit um, uh,
1: So I've done a lot of research, honestly, um, worked on several different research studies that included um, social media and communication. Um, A lot of my work um, thus far, I'm still adding in social media communication and learning more about it. Um, But some of the projects I've worked on, we use like Facebook and we use other um, media apps, um, Snapchat, to engage and understand how people are communicating and sharing sexual health uh, information. One of the studies I worked on looked at um, communication around sexual health and um, increase of HIV testing among MSM populations in using Facebook. And it was a really awesome study to kind of see how, um, and there they also use peer leaders, you know, how peer leaders can provide the information in a way on these platforms that actually inform um, individuals who may be at risk and also change their behaviors in a sense of you know, getting them to um, think about and actually um, ordering H- home testing HIV kits. Um, and, and that was really awesome. Um, and then um, working on another project where we provide information to um, 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 young mothers who um may it be at risk for HIV or may have um other needs on Snapchat and providing like little snippets of videos that are there when you know for them to check and then kind of disappear um when you know when it's not needed and just providing that information over um, time, and that was kind of awesome to see as well. Um, my work really, um looking at young black women, um, I've been focusing on understanding how they communicate with friends um, across um, social media platforms and how and if they're using those to talk about sexual health. Um, and what I'm finding is um, a lot of the black women in my study act in my studies actually aren't using social media um, as much as we expect to talk about, um sexual health and 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 HIV risk um which could be an opportunity to improve or if you're looking at meeting them where they are then it might be you know, a place where maybe we don't use social media to talk about sexual health. Maybe we just give them, you know, like little memes or something. So what I was finding was, yeah, you know, they like to share things like memes. They like to share images. They like to share, you know, uh, articles. But when it comes to actual communication and them talking about their own stuff, they do not do that on social media. That's done a lot through text messaging and a lot through in-person communication. But when it comes to social media and sexual health communication, communication, it's not really a conversation. It's more of, you know, sharing posts or sharing things that they think are funny or sharing things that they, you know, think would be interesting to their friends, but not in a more, not in a serious like relationship. Let me tell you about me and my, my boyfriend, or let me tell you about me and my situation, um, situationship that typically happens via text message and, in person, which kind of changed, um, my views on, you know, where interventions should take place um, when it comes to uh, actually having conversations. And when it comes to education, social media seems to be a great place for um, education and information about sexual health. But when it comes to actual communication and and conversations, um, that's not where they're taking place. Uh, And so it's really changing how I think about um inter, uh, creating interventions and and what would be the most optimal way to you know create these conversations because it's been shown in in a lot of my research too um and just in research across um the sexual health field that sexual health communication um usually has a really positive Im- a, uh, uh, impact or association with Um, sexual health outcomes. So um, in one of my studies, looking at um, homeless, uh, youth experiencing homelessness um, and communication with their parents, um, people who reported having parents in our network uh, reported that um, having a parent that was close with them or having a parent um, who they were able to talk about sex and relationships um, changed or um, increased their sexual health behaviors um, in a way of like uh, that was positive. So like increasing testing, increasing condom uses, particularly among um Black youth who are experiencing homelessness. Um, It didn't really have the same effect on um, white youth who are experiencing homelessness, Um, but when it came to Black youth, um, having a parent in their network where they're able to talk to them about sex and relationships and having a parent in their network where they were able to, um, that they felt they were really close to um, increase their condom use and also increase their their, their, uh, odds of getting tested for HIV.
0: Wow. Really, really interesting findings. Um, so I know you are part of the HIV intervention science training program, and so am I. Um, how has this program so far impacted the kind of work that you're doing? And, oh, my uh, goodness. Um,
1: it it's skillset? been amazing, honestly. Um, uh, really just building the connections <laughs> and the networks there has it, been really beneficial uh to my career and even just getting the feedback um, about the work i'm doing and advice has been really helpful and we got the opportunity to work with um a computer gaming um uh, developer and you know walking through the steps needed to develop a computer game or develop an intervention on a media-based platform really changed how I thought about developing interventions or what was needed to go into developing interventions. It taught me that I knew very little um, about this, Um, but it's really shaped and inspired me to take bigger steps and bigger leaps in the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, You know, because I didn't think video games. I've never thought video games. I never thought anything besides maybe like know, using an app or using text message-based interventions, but to be able to think outside of the box of, you know, ways to reach the population in which I'm really interested in reaching, um, this has provided me with that framework of like, don't think too small, right? Don't think too small in these problems. These problems and these issues are large and they can be addressed in many different ways. Um, so don't think too small and it's definitely has uh taught me that um i don't know i just i feel like it's just been such a great experience being a part of HISTP. um just so much great support and just keeps me on my toes when it comes to my thoughts and 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 research and you know just questions on well why would you do that you know how have you ever thought about doing this differently or you know and it just keeps me aware. Um, I'm learning so much even just about different populations outside of the ones I work with in different ways people are approaching some of the similar problems in different populations, which also allows you to be really innovative, right? It allows you to say, wow, I never considered doing that with this population, or what if we took your idea and my idea and merged them together to create this larger, bigger thing that we can do. Um, and so it's just those opportunities have really, I mean, you know, being a part of this program has really provided me the space to have a more collaboration and more innovative thoughts happening, uh, more just in general. It's just been a great, great experience.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And just for the viewers, the HISTP is the HIV intervention science training program, which is a National Institutes of Mental Health funded multidisciplinary training program that seeks to develop and facilitate the growth of scientists from underrepresented groups conducting HIV-related dissemination and implementation research. And it's conducted or it's housed at Columbia University in the School of Social Work. So both I and Dr. Craddock are fellows in that program and we have really learned a lot from participating in that program. So one last question. what advice would you give to a student interested in social work and also in sexual health? Yes. Studies, Ooh, that's um, a big question. Want so
1: I'm going to start off with students interested in social work. So my advice is always do it. Um, if you're interested in social work, I say um, it depends. I mean, you have social work practice and that's like the MSW level and then social work research, um, which is more the PhD level. Um, the MSW level, I say do it. Apply. It's one of The most flexible degrees to have. um, You can work and do many things with the MSW from having your own private practice for therapy to working in the community, running a nonprofit, working directly with families, um, working in the governmental government agencies locally and federally. I have a friend who um, took her MSW to Capitol Hill and is working in policy creation on Capitol Hill with her MSW. Um, I mean, MSWs are needed everywhere. They're in the hospital. So even like with the COVID-19, um, there's a lot of social workers who are in the hospital, hospital, working um, with nurses, working with physicians uh, to keep the system running, really. They're like the hidden or, you know, population of um, profession that is in the hospital, you know, managing and, and maintaining um, what is being done there. And, you know, even right now, there's a lot of uh, essential workers that are social workers who are out there every day. Um, we're doing a lot of the background work of keeping things running. Um, And uh, it's, you know, it's just so much you can do with the MSW. Like I said, I mean, you can work in the hospitals, you can be a therapist, you can be, you know, um, um, in, in the governmental sector, and um, so you know, if you're interested, do it and and learn about all the different things you can do with your MSW, um, and have a have a vision too of like, you know, what do you hope to do and what do you hope to get out of that experience? It's it's really a great um, a great degree to have a great profession to be in um, when it comes to uh, research. Um, Definitely the PhD. So I did both the MSW PhD, um, which I think were great. Uh, my PhD, um, a lot of my classes were in social work and in public health, hence the social work public health. Um, yeah. And I also have to give a shout out to the public health social work section of APHA, um, who I am the secretary there. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. make that disclaimer. But um, yeah, so you know, my work, my PhD program really focused on both public health and social work. So I took a lot of epi classes. I took a lot of public health classes. I took a lot of social work classes. And I think the merge of those two together really made um, me who I am when it comes to my research. But, you know, that can be done for a lot of um, PhD programs um, in social work. Um, I had uh, one of my cohort members who did like the, um, took business classes in her, um, with her PhD. Um, So she had social work and a lot of business courses, which focused more on the governmental, the business side, the corporate side of, you know, uh, human relations, because the goal of social work is to improve human relations. So understanding how you know um, work environments impact overall health and um, well-being, um, and so she was doing more of that perspective. So I feel like it's a really flexible degree to have. It's really the perspective and the lens that varies from different. Um, different uh uh, other fields and so yeah so I say just do it um advice would be um outside of just doing it um you know no that's my advice just do it
0: (laughs) that's good awesome so I'm excited that um you know you have been able to tell us about your background in social work, but also showing the interrelationship of social work to public health. Mm -hmm. And just, again, how we cannot work in silos, you know, uh, when we all come together, to ensure the health of the community or the health of the public. Uh, working collaboratively helps us even go farther um, and make a greater impact um, within our community. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, thank and, you. Thank uh, you so much, much to have to have me, having, you for having
1: time. me. And I just want to say one last thing too, when you're talking about the collaboration of um, public health and social work, I just want to say each one needs one. So. That in the sense that to make the change that we need in the world, we all need to work together. We all, each profession needs the other profession, um, needs the other profession to work together um, to change the world.
0: So, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you again. And that's all we have today for our listeners. And uh, we look forward to the next round of um, interviews for this week and the coming week.